0: Hello, I'm Alec, and this is Scandal One (sighs) O One. This week has been a real bummer. To start off, earlier this week, uh, one person who was very important to me passed away. His name was Dr. Smith. He was, uh, at first, my intro to gov professor in undergrad, and then he was basically like a mentor and a friend. He motivated me to open my eyes to law school, eventually pushed me to go to law school, Um and just was super inspirational to anyone who had the opportunity to work with him, to know him. One funny story I'll quickly let you know that he would always do is he, on every single final exam that he gave for his intro to gov class, there was always one multiple choice question at the beginning, and it was like A, B, C, D, or E. And throughout the semester, he would always say, the answer is always c and he told us multiple times on the final exam there is going to be a multiple choice question and just remember the answer is always c during the final exam he would come with a mug that says the answer is c and it had a bunch of c's on it and there were even times when he would like write the letter c on the whiteboard and just to like see if people paid attention he taught for almost 20 i think over 20 years where i went to college and When I was there, he told me there had never been a year where every single student had got it right, even though it was on the board, on his mug, he had told us many times, there were still multiple students who would always get it wrong, and he said, at the bare minimum, I know that it can't just be me if questions are being missed on the test, even if I give them the answers, (laughs) So it was a way for him to see if people listened and just a way to give some people help. An extra two points on the test. Heck yeah, why wouldn't you take it? So <sighs> he will be missed. Rest in peace, Dr. Smith. And then on top of that, normally I talk about scandal updates that have happened in the news recently, and I think the biggest one that has been on everyone's minds is the leaked Supreme Court opinion. If it ends up being the final decision, no judges change their votes, will completely override Roe versus Wade. It's unfortunate because I mean, it's unfortunate for many reasons. It is rolling back rights that have been in place for about 50 years now. It re, Overturning Roe versus Wade doesn't stop abortions. It just stops the ability of people in some states to get safe abortions. Abortions are still going to happen. When you look at hard data, what prevents unwanted pregnancies is better education in schools that are comprehensive sex education. There are so many ways to lower the rates of abortions than just to get rid of abortions. That's not the answer. I'm not going to spend too long on this topic because that's not what this episode is about, but if you really look into the issue Preventing abortions is not the way to reduce abortions. There are many other ways to do it, and this is just a way to restrict rights, and it's ultimately going to harm a lot of people who don't have a lot of resources, are not going to have the resources to travel to states to get an abortion if they need one. States assuming nothing passes at the federal level, and assuming the decision is final, will be allowed to criminalize abortion, will be allowed to outlaw all kinds of abortion, even those incidents of rape and incest. States can now, assuming the decision is final, can do whatever they want with abortion. That has definitely been the biggest scandal I have seen in the news recently. And why I say it's a scandal also is because It's not often, hardly ever, I think, that a draft of a Supreme Court opinion is leaked. So not only is the decision being overturned a huge deal, but the fact that the opinion was leaked is also a huge deal. So that will be interesting to see who was responsible for the leak and just to see how all of that is taken care of. Okay, so that was kind of a depressing way to start the episode— But it is what is going on in the world. It's what's going on in my life. Let's get to this episode. I am excited to talk about this episode. I'd heard of it before, but kind of forgot about it. And I was texting with my dad this past week and he was like, oh, you should do this topic. And I was like, yes, I should. So thanks, Dad for the recommendation and the sources I used for this episode a BBC article in 2018, titled D- John Allen Chow: Family Forgives Tribe Who Killed American, An article by Jay Gettleman, published in 2018 and a couple other authors in the New York Times titled John Chow East Missionary Boot Camp. An article published in 2006 in The Guardian by D. McDougal, An insider article published in 2018 by J. Shamsian. An article in Forbes published in 2018 by K. N. Smith. A chapter in a book. Chapter 8 by G. Weber in a book called In the Tribes. The chapter is called The Andamanese three different Wikipedia pages, and then an article by National Geographic by F. Zakir in 2018. Those are my sources, and I titled this episode Killings, History, and Mystery of North Sentinel Island because I'm just so passionate about poetry. (laughs) So let's dive into it. The story today involves an interesting and Whoa, an interesting group of people, people who are completely independent from the outside world. There aren't many people, groups of people who live like this, who live completely isolated from the outside world. And not only is it rare to find a group of people who live like this, but it's also kind of a hot topic for a debate. It's also debated how to interact with these people, and how to handle situations when people go into these situations from the outside world and they don't come back out. That is what has happened to three people on North Sentinel Island, which has gotten a lot of attention, and so let's talk about it. North Sentinel Island, which the rest of the episode I'm just going to call Sentinel Island. It is one of the Andaman Islands, which is an Indian archipelago in the Bay of Bengal. It has about 23 square miles of land, and beside the shore that just goes all the way around the island, the entire rest of the island is forested. There's not an exact understanding of the different kinds of plants and wildlife that live there on the island other than what was reported in an 1880 expedition to the island. From that expedition, it was described as a, quote, park-like jungle, end quote, with lots of trees, and a major food source on the island is Indian boar. More importantly to the story, the island is home to the Sentinelese people. The Sentinelese, uh, they are a group of indigenous people who live in voluntary isolation and have defended themselves from the outside world. Looking back at the history of the Sentinelese people, it shows a pattern of wanting to remain free from the outside world, so it's not something that people have just recently discovered it it goes way back going way way back to 1771 there was a ship of the East India Company that was sailing past Sentinel Island and quote saw lights gleaming on the shore end quote even though the people on the boat saw lights on the shore they were like hey We're actually on a survey mission. We don't have a reason to stop. So that boat just kept floating on by and no one went to the island. But that is one of the first recorded incidents with people seeing something on the island. The ship, of course, didn't actually go there. But if there's lights on the island, there have to be people there. They saw it back in 1771. It would be almost 100 years later until people from the outside world would have an interaction with people on the island. In 1867, a couple of things happened. So there was one person who traveled to the island and he just went there. Cool beans and it seemed to go fine. But also in 1867, there was a ship called the Ninevet, and it ran ran aground on the reef of the island. There were 86 passengers and 20 crew members that managed to get out of the water and get onto the beach. The shipwrecks, the survivors, it was back in 1867, so they couldn't just whip out their cell phones and call people. They were stranded on the beach for three days, and... They were able to stay on the beach with seemingly no incident. There was no interaction with the Sentinelese people until the end of their time on the beach. Towards the end of the three days, the the Sentinelese started to attack the people with bows and arrows. According to the captain of the ship that had wrecked, the tribes people were quote perfectly naked with short hair and painted red noses and were opening their mouths and making a sound like pa on oog. Their arrows appeared to be tipped with iron," end quote. the crew members of the ship they protected themselves from the sentinelese people with sticks and stones. And eventually they were rescued by the British Royal Navy. And from everything I could find, it seemed like everyone who survived the shipwreck survived their time on the island. So the Sentinelese people, even though they were shooting them with bows and arrows, it doesn't seem like anyone was killed. The British Navy, they rescued the people of the shipwreck. And when they were there, they were like, oh, hey, this looks Super cool, loving this island, it's ours now. And as we know, the British were just loving to expand their empire, they basically took land wherever they could get it, and so the island became part of the British colony's holdings, which leads to the next encounter from the outside world with the Sentinelese people. In 1880, a Royal Navy officer named Maurice Vidal Portman became in charge of the Andaman and Nicobar Colony. And just as a reminder, Sentinel Island is part of the Andaman Islands. Maurice, he went into Sentinel Island onto the island with a bunch of Navy officers and some convicts. Um, They got onto the island and they started to go inland a little bit past the beach into the forested areas. And once they were a little bit inland, they found abandoned villages. It's now assumed that the people, the Sentinelese people, they saw these people coming on their island. And so they fled into the forested, went further inland. But unfortunately, not everyone was able to flee. There was an elderly couple and four children of Sentinelese people found, and so the search party did what anyone would naturally do. Captured them and carried them to Port Blair, the colonial capital on South Andaman Island. Unsurprisingly to us now, but it wasn't known back then, was that when people are introduced to a new environment or new things are introduced to people in a new environment, The people that are new, or the people that are being introduced to new things, don't have antibodies for what they encounter. All six kidnapped Sentinelese people became very sick, and the elderly couple unfortunately died in Port Blair. The British, of course, let's just, okay, let's just recap. The British, they go onto this island, after they've claimed it as theirs, they kidnap six people, two of the older people die, so what happens next? let's just take the younger people back and we'll, we'll bring some gifts with them. We'll leave them with gifts on the island. It'll be fine. Don't even worry about it. That'll make everything cool. A quote from an officer overseeing the operation said that the group, quote, sickened rapidly and the old man and his wife died. So the four children were sent back to their home with quantities of presents. End quote. Maurice, the captain person, he reportedly went back to the island a few times which one of them was reportedly after hearing what they thought to be gunfire which was supposed to signal a distress call from a ship but it was later discovered that it was Krakatoa that exploded over 1,500 miles away and when I read this I looked it up so side story I looked it up because, one, I was like, how could a volcanic eruption be heard from 1,500 miles away? And also, I looked it up because in middle school, I played this song, a band song called Krakatoa, and it was one of my favorite things I played in band up until high school. But Krakatoa's explosion was reportedly heard up to 3,000 miles away, and the sound wave was recorded to have traveled the world seven times. Not only was the eruption of Krakatoa loud enough to travel the world seven times, over 36,000 people died either from the eruption or from the the tsunamis that the explosion created. That's a side story, side tangent, but that I thought was an interesting little tidbit of history that you can go now brag to your friends about. Okay, so back to the Sentinel Island and the people who live there. This experience with the British, the one where the British kidnapped some members of their island, it took them away, two of them died, and brought them back. It likely didn't go over well with the Sentinelese people and that's not surprising. In 1896, a Hindu convict escaped the Great Andaman Island penal colony on a makeshift raft which was kind of by Sentinel Island. And this person, they escaped prison. They were probably thinking, heck yes, I'm out of prison. I'm off to freedom. I've got my raft. I'm going to float away off into the sunset. He ended up washing ashore on Sentinel Island. There was a search party for him and his remains were found with, quote, full of arrow wounds with cuts to his throat, end quote. At that point, it was thought that the British should probably leave the sentinel people alone just leave that island to be a eh, yada yeah, of course it's their island this is from what i could find in my research one of the first recorded deaths that happened at the hands of the sentinelese people but it's like they already didn't want you there in the first place plus It's not your island. They were there before. Let them be. It would be quite a while before there was any interactions with the Sentinelese people in recorded history. In 1947, India gained their independence from Britain, and so now the island is under Indian control. Late in the 1960s, an Indian anthropologist named Triloknath Pandit started to visit the island with the Anthropological Survey of India, and over a span of four decades, he made multiple visits, and kind of tracking the progress on the first visit, he did what he called a, quote, gift-dropping, end quote, expedition with the help of local police. He told the New York Times in an interview that, quote, they were watching us carefully, and they must not have been happy because they picked up their bows and arrows. This whole encounter was so amazing, because here is civilized man facing primitive man in its, in its extreme state, living very simply." End quote. Even though these um, trips to the island were taking place over decades, contact with the group wasn't made until 1991. Before contact was made, there were other attempts that were made, such as National Geographic uh, making a documentary about the island. The film crew they approached the island on a boat, and the Sentinelese shot arrows at them, and the film director of the National Geographic film was hit in the thigh with an arrow. In 1975, the exiled king of Belgium toured the Andaman Islands, and he was brought close to Sentinel Island. Quote, as soon as his boat got too close, they shot an arrow in his direction. The king was overjoyed and said it was the best day of his life. End quote. I don't know what that king's life was like, but getting an arrow shot at me probably wouldn't be the best day of my life, but you do you. In 1981, a cargo ship wrecked near the island, and there were 28 sailors that were stuck on the island for almost two weeks. The sailors they were later rescued, but this... Landing and shipwreck is significant because after the wreck, the Sentinelese were later found to be using metal tools. And I didn't talk much about the Sentinelese people, but the Sentinelese people are essentially a group of people who are living in the most primitive way that man has lived no electricity, no running water in terms of plumbing no modern technology, basically when you think of just an ancient tribal group of people in terms of hunting, living, gathering, and defending land, that's essentially what they're doing on the island. Why this shipwreck is significant is because unless there was metal on the island already, they wouldn't have had access to it because they don't trade with anybody. They are completely self-sufficient people. Medicine, whatever forms of first aid they have, everything is from the island. So this shipwreck potentially and most likely introduced the kinds of metals that were on the ship and likely progressed their society and tribes. And when I say progress, I mean like, historically you have like the stone age and then the bronze age or whatever you introduce all those metals and so now they go from having none of whatever metals those were to having metals which is just mind-blowing that in 1981 that is when they potentially started using metal tools peaceful contact was made with the sentinelese people in 1991 with Uh, a group of Indian anthropologists, one of whom was a woman named Madhumala Chattopadhyay, When her group approached the island, they saw a group of four Sentinelese men armed with bows and arrows walk to the shoreline. They floated coconuts uh, to the men in the water, and the men came down and got the coconuts. Coconuts, they didn't grow on the island, so this was a new resource for them, and while the men got the coconuts from the water, women and children watched from a distance. Her and her team came back about a month later, and they were greeted by the Sentinelese people without weapons, which is a huge deal. And the Sentinelese, some of the people even climbed into the boat and took out an entire bag of coconuts. They were just like, thank you, this is ours now. But eventually, the contact stopped, but that is the first time where people got to interact with the Sentinelese people up close, and it was peaceful. And then in 2004, there was the Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami, which was a 9.1 to 9.3 magnitude earthquake, and then the tsunami created waves of up to 100 feet, almost 228 Thousand people died from this natural disaster. After this event, the Indian government sent a helicopter to fly over the island to see how the Sentinelese people were because they don't have any modern form of technology or resources, so this potentially could have been very devastating and wiped out the island, but when the people in the helicopter flew over, They found that the island and the Sentinelese people were in good shape and really didn't seem to be affected by what was going on. And this was especially shown by the fact that (laughs) bows and arrows were shot at the helicopter to fend them off. That is a kind of in-depth, but not completely in-depth, history of the Sentinelese people and the island a little bit. We know the prisoner was killed, we know that they have... Used bows and arrows to fend people off. And we also know that they have had peaceful contact with outside people. So, what I'm going to talk about now are the three killings that are widely talked about with Sentinel Island and the Sentinelese people, the controversy that surrounds them, and kind of what has maintained the debate and the mystery of Sentinel Island. The first of these stories takes place in 2006 when 48-year-old Sundar Raj and 52-year-old Pandit Tiwari were killed by the Sentinelese people. The two men, they were out on their boat attempting to illegally harvest crabs off of Sentinel Island, And this is illegal because back in 1956, the government of India had declared North Sentinel Island to be a tribal reserve and prohibited travel there unless it was approved by the government, which the surveys to the island and when the peaceful contact was made, that was approved, there was no problem. But unless you have an approved reason to go there, it's off limits. You can't go, I think it's like even half a mile radius around the island, you can't, go any closer than that so these men they were breaking the law they were trying to illegally harvest crabs off of the island and in the night their boat drifted toward the island apparently from a failure to anchor down the boat there were other nearby fishermen who were presumably doing the same thing they tried to warn them but their boat floated close to the island the fishermen they were believed to be drunk on palm wine and they met a brutal end The nearby fishermen said that they were attacked by, quote, near-naked, axe-wielding tribal warriors with their craft beached on the island, end quote. So these two men met a brutal end, presumably an axe killing, and when word of this got back to the Indian Coast Guard, they sent a helicopter out to investigate, but bows and arrows were used by the Sentinelese people to fend off their helicopter. Despite the Indian Coast Guard not being able to actually go to the island and land on the island, the helicopter was able to get close enough to where the downblow wind from the helicopter blades blew sand away and it revealed the bodies in a shallow grave. So the two men were definitely killed and were buried by the Sentinelese people. After the news of the killings got out, a huge debate started. Do we bring the killers to justice? If so, how do we do so? We don't know who killed the men. These people have no immune system. So if we go there, we could be potentially killing them. So just how do we handle the situation? There was debate on both sides, a lot of people wanting a murder charge, and a lot of people not wanting to prosecute the Sentinelese people. And one person against bringing justice and prosecuting the Sentinelese people for the killing was the father of Pandit Tiwari. He said about his son, quote, My son Pandit got his own justice. He was breaking the law, poaching and trespassing on land that wasn't his own, and he was murdered. What more is there to say? As far as I'm concerned, the Sentinelese are the victims in this, not my son. They live in constant terror of heavily armed poachers from Myanmar and Port Blair. They were only defending themselves with bows and arrows and rocks in the only way they know how. What I do want is my son's body back so my wife and I can bury him. We don't want retribution. It is an impossible case to prosecute anyway. End quote. A sharp contrast from that was the wife of the other victim, Sundar Raj. His wife demanded a police investigation and said that she expected a prosecution. Quote, My husband has been murdered and nobody is left to care for me and my family. The government and police have washed their hands of this matter. Nobody seems to want to offend the tribe, but two men have been killed. We want the bodies to be retrieved and the police to arrest the murderers. "...whether my husband was poaching or not, he didn't deserve to be killed with an End quote. To me, this debate is interesting in itself, but it's also interesting to see that the family of one victim is like, they brought it on themselves, they were breaking the law, and then the family of the other victim is like, okay, they were breaking the law, but they still didn't deserve to be killed. And I see both sides, because on one hand, no one deserves to be killed, but On the other hand, they were in an area where they weren't supposed to be, and the area that they were in is home to people who are primitive in the way that they aren't part of modern society. So if they feel threatened, they don't have a justice system like we do. To them, they need to protect their land. They've shown it in the past, they'll protect their land and they'll do it again. And yes, the men didn't go to the island intentionally, but they were by the island, they didn't anchor down their boat, and they ended up on the island. No one deserves to be killed, but I would think that if you're going to go to an island where this has been established, you're not supposed to be there, you choose to get drunk on a boat, and you forget to anchor down your boat? I don't know. To me, it definitely seemed like it was avoidable. Again, not that they deserve to be killed, but... shouldn't have gone there in the first place. The second story, it's more recent, uh, it's much more publicized, and I think this is when I heard about Sentinel Island. It took place in 2018 and was the killing of one person by the Sentinelese people. The person who was killed was named John Allen Chow. John, he grew up the son of a lawyer and a psychiatrist, his mother was American, his father was Chinese. John, he attended a Christian high school and went to Oral Roberts University, which is a fundamentalist Christian school. John, as a person, was described as outgoing and positive. After college, John took some temporary jobs, he traveled around. Um, which he documented about by blogging all of his experiences. He learned first aid, he became an EMT, and all around just seemed like a pretty smart person with good social skills, with just a good head on his shoulder. Following his strong beliefs in Christianity, he took multiple mission trips, some to Mexico, some to South Africa, and to Iraqi Kurdistan. He also visited the Andaman Islands in 2015 and 2016, but during those times he never visited North Sentinel Island. It was in October of 2017 when John started taking steps that would eventually uh, lead to the end of his life. In October of 2017, John started training at the All Nations headquarters in Kansas City, Missouri. And All Nations is a hardcore Christian group, and part of his training included being dropped off on a random dirt road after being blindfolded, walking a long way until he found a fake village in the wood where other missionaries pretended to not understand English, they became physically aggressive and where some of them would come at him with fake spears. It was his training to become a preacher in a situation of people who wouldn't understand, who wouldn't necessarily accept him right off the bat, such as, potentially, the people on Sentinel Island. The exercise was, quote, designed to reflect an amalgamation of many different aspects of language and culture that a missionary might encounter on the field, end quote. Apparently during this training, he did really well. But here's my suggestion, not only to this organization, but to you as an avid listener. Let people choose their faith, their religion, if they want to have it. Don't force it on them. And mission trips... Ugh, don't even get me started. Mission trips make me mad because it's kind of like volunteerism, which I really want to do an episode on volunteerism. Not to say that mission trips don't accomplish good things, building wells, providing resources. Mission trips can do good things, but if your mission trip is to spread the word of God to people who don't believe in your God, and then you're also giving them resources to be like here's some water that you desperately need, let me tell you about my god and how your god is wrong and how we need to save you? Garbage. Don't do it. My opinion, but mission trips and volunteerism make me so mad. Anyway, back to it. John passed his training, he was seemingly excited to go to Sentinel Island, so he traveled to Port Blair of the Andaman Islands in October of 2018, and he lived in an apartment for a period of 11 days. Police later theorize that he was doing this to avoid being caught, but his friends say that he was trying to quarantine himself to not endanger the immune systems of the people on Sentinel Island, which I could definitely see that, especially given his training as an EMT, but at the same time, I could also see the police's theory of he's going to try and break the law to go to this island, of course he's going to hide out, but... Either way, he hid out for 11 days, and then he hired five fishermen who took him to the island. When the fisherman and John got near the island, John got into a kayak and paddled toward the island. The fishermen themselves, they refused to go closer than a half mile to the shore. A lot of what John said and what John did on the island comes from either his journal or from what the fishermen who took him there saw. So in his journal, he wrote that he preached to people on the beach from his kayak in the water saying, quote, my name is John. I love you and Jesus loves you. End quote. Apparently after doing this, they raised their bows at him. So he was like, "Okay, I'm going to go back. He went back to the fishing boat in his kayak. He tried again later by trying to get to the beach with gifts such as scissors and safety pins, but they shot arrows at him again and an arrow even was shot into the Bible he was carrying. Pretty ironic. That happened and then another thing that happened was there was a sentinelese man standing on the beach yelling at him. One of the anthropologists who was actually able to make contact with the people and go to the island later said that these were clear signs that the Sentinelese people weren't wanting to engage with him and that quote, if they were so savage, they would have slaughtered him straight away, end quote, which is a good point that I will tie back in later. So John, he tried a few more times, but he was chased off. And eventually he was like, you know what, I just got a full send committed. I'm going to swim to the island and I'm going to make peace with them. And so the fishermen were like, okay, good luck, and then they left. The fishermen, they came back the next day to check in on him, and what they saw was the Sentinelese people dragging John's dead body along the beach to be buried. John's family, after getting news of his death, said, quote, he was a beloved son, brother, uncle, and best friend to us. To others, he was a Christian missionary, a wilderness EMT, an international soccer coach, and a mountaineer. He loved God, life, helping those in need, and he had nothing but love for the Sentinelese people, end quote. Some more stuff that was found in his journal after he died was he was wondering if the island might be, quote, Satan's last stronghold. What makes them become this defensive and hostile, end quote. He also wrote, quote, You guys might think I'm crazy in all of this, but I think it's worthwhile to declare Jesus to these people. God, I don't want to die, end quote. The fishermen who helped him and a couple others were arrested for breaking the law. There were several attempts to recover John's body, but none of them were successful and the attempts were eventually abandoned because it was too dangerous. There was a murder case opened, but nothing happened since then and as far as I could find as of today recording, Thursday, March. March, oh my god, Thursday, May 5th, 2022, no charges have actually been pursued. The aftermath of this was interesting. John's father blames all nations, the Christian group, for getting getting John in on an extremist Christianity vision, and all nations themselves, they received scrutiny after they described John as a martyr while saying how sad they were that he died. In an Instagram post in 2018, John's family said that they forgave those who were, spo- who were responsible for his death and that, quote, he ventured out on his own free will, end quote. And then in terms of a debate that happened after John's death, there were a lot of people who were wanting a prosecution. They were also wanting the people to be modernized and saying pretty horrible things. They said that they were, quote, savages, end quote, which is just a gross term. But also, the anthropologist brought up a good point. If these people were such monsters, the Sentinelese people were so horrible, they would have killed John right away. If they were wanting to just kill anybody who came nearby, they would have done so. They gave him clear warning signs that, like, don't come here, we don't want you, we don't want whatever you're bringing. I mean, obviously they couldn't understand him because they don't speak English, but they were giving clear warning signs that we don't want outside people coming to this island for any reason. And the fact that he continued to go to spread his religious beliefs, it and the religious aspect is just... Another another layer of it, but even removing religion, you were going to a place that you are not allowed to go, that has been designated as a tribal reserve. It has been established that the group of people who live there don't want outsiders coming in. One of my favorite sayings of all time, "You play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. He knew he wasn't supposed to go there. It was illegal. He was going for some BS reason that these people clearly don't want, and you know what? You played a stupid game, and while no one deserves to be killed, you won the stupid prize that was likely to come out of that stupid game. Again, no one deserves to be killed and it's unfortunate that Sundar Raj, Pandit Tiwari, and John Allen Chow were killed by the Sentinelese people. But at the same time, it's not like they were murdered just to be murdered. They were murdered because they broke the law and went onto an island where a group of people who don't have the same concept of justice as the rest of the world, who are primitive in terms of comparing them to a modern society, and have, an is- have a clear history of not wanting outside people to come to their island, they did it anyway. And so, while no one deserves to be killed, it's not surprising that they were. To blame the Sentinelese people, I think, is unfair. I think that the blame rests on the people who went to the island. A quote that kind of sums up what I just said is from the anthropologist who was able to have a peaceful encounter with the Sentinelese, said, quote, "...the tribes have been living on the islands for centuries without any problem." Their troubles started after they came into contact with outsiders. The tribes of the islands do not need outsiders to protect them. What they need is to be left alone. End quote. And with that, that concludes Killings, History, and Mystery of North Sentinel Island. And I already kind of wrapped up my thoughts on how it all played out, so I'm just going to dive right into the personal scandal this one's about learning a scandal or a family secret that you learned way too late in life. And this person sent in that my dad got two girls pregnant in the same year. He didn't tell anyone even though the babies were br- were born 4 months apart and in the same grade and with the same last names all throughout school. I found out through ancestry.com DNA match and pieced everything together. First of all, thanks for sending that in. I love stories of people doing either Ancestry.com or doing the 23andMe kits or whatever the DNA tests are that unveils some deep, dark family secrets. Those are my favorites. So thank you so much for that. Alrighty, that wraps up this episode. I have another final tomorrow if you're listening on the day this episode comes out, so please wish me luck. I'm going to post photos relating to this case on social media, on Instagram at Scandal 101 Podcast, on Twitter at Scandal 101 Pod, on Facebook search Scandal 101 Podcast, you'll find us there. The website is scandal101podcast.podbean.com You can find the show notes there. You can also find the show notes in the episode description. And if you want your personal scandal read on the podcast, it can be anything personal, family related, family secrets, stuff that happened at your school, at your work, small town, anything, send it to scandal101podcast at gmail.com Thanks so much for listening. I hope Next week is a better week than next week. What am I saying? (laughs) I hope next week is a better week than this week. Thanks so much for listening. This has been episode 51 of Scandal 101.